This is episode 53 of the Magic Detective podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Keo, the great Russian illusionist. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 53. So, did you think I forgot about you? Did you think after reaching 52 episodes, I'd just abandon you? Hardly. Though, uh, the truth is kind of odd. Um... As you're aware, we're in the midst of a pandemic. It's that time in the world, and we're all supposed to hunker down and not go to work and blah, 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 blah. And I did okay with that for a couple weeks, but um, as with many, my work vanished. I'm a professional magician, so they're, you know, (laughs) live venue work gone, (laughs) like a magic trick. Um, And I knew I was going to need to be creative and do something special, so... um, One of my genius ideas was to load my car full of magic props and drive to Nashville, where I'm eventually going to relocate. And um, doing that, I'd be able to work on my show, continue my online classes, which I'd been taking, and uh, with any luck, implement one or two of my new business strategies. The one problem was I left the bulk of my library and research material back behind in Virginia. I, I brought some books. I actually bought surprisingly, like a hundred books with me, but they're not all, you know, magic history books. So, um, that kind of threw a wrench in any sort of research. I, in fact, the, the podcast today, I really had to dig deep in order to get it finished. Um, and add to this, the, uh, the riots and the protests that have been going on. Um, I just felt that it was better to stay put. So I've been in Nashville this entire time. Um, the good news is I have been able to return to doing shows, kind of, uh, though not in person. Um, I'm doing virtual shows live on the internet, and um, I have to say my clients have been very pleased so far. I have learned an unbelievable amount on how to do this. It's just crazy um, being in the business for this long, being a performer this long, that uh, I never imagined having to completely uh, reinvent uh, everything I do. But that's pretty much what's happened here, uh, given the uh, pandemic. And of course, if I want to stay a performer. So um, the bad news is I lost, well, of course, I lost all my my work from the middle of March until uh, about the middle of June. That was an unbelievable amount of shows, I'm sad to say. Um, However, I had uh, a good deal of my summer booked, and I began to lose a lot of that. But some of those clients have stayed on and decided to do virtual. And thankfully, those that did decide to do virtual have been thrilled uh, with the the product because, like I said, I've worked really hard to uh, create a very good product for them. So, and here's an interesting little note. I did a virtual show on the weekend last weekend and I included a couple magic history stories. And what was great about it is I'm using a green screen for the background 
And I decided, well, I've got a green screen behind me. I'm going to use that as kind of a PowerPoint presentation when I talk about magic history. So I was able to put a, you know, very large pictures of, uh, in this case, Lafayette and Houdini, and then Charlie Chaplin and Houdini uh, during the uh, the segments where I talked about magic history. So that was uh, that was a cool bonus that I hadn't planned on initially, but it uh, turned out to be successful in that you know that way. So that was cool. Um, one thing I do want to mention really quick: a quick apology to Chip Romano. Apparently, last month I mentioned his Doug Henning collection, and I attributed it to Chuck Romano which uh, it clearly does not belong to Chuck Romano. It's Chip Romano. Uh, Chuck is a great magic historian in his own right, but the Doug Henning collection is Chip's, and he deserves all the credit, and oh my gosh, is that an incredible collection. I hope hope you'll let me see it live in person someday, because wow, I was impressed. Oh, and how did I see it? Well, uh, the boys, uh, David Sandy and Lance Rich, have uh, just uh, done an unbelievable thing. They put together the Magic Collector's Corner Zoom show that they do every Sunday. And they just, I can't say, um, they've been knocking it out of the park every weekend. I've not seen all of them, but the ones that I've seen, they're just incredible. I mean, just I hate you guys in the nicest way. <laughs> you just did such a great job. Seriously, um, uh, wow, it's it's great and um, a big uh, uh, standing ovation for you all for doing such a fine job and uh, representing magic history in such a great way. So good job, I'm I'm a big fan. Okay, so one more thing before we get to the podcast today: the sad news: uh, Marvin Roy has passed away. I guess this was just yesterday. Um, He was known, of course, as Mr. Electric and toured the world with his wife, Carol, who passed away a few years before him. Um, They also presented another act called the Diamond Illusionist Act that was created for a tour that they did with Liberace. And I understand they also did an act at some point based on puzzles, but I don't know how popular that act was. Marvin had done a lecture tape for Stevens Magic, which was part of the Greater Magic Video Library. It was number 40. And there's some great material on their um, act on that video. In fact, they present the Mr. Electric Act. They also present the Diamond Illusionist Act. So you get to see both of those. And they break them down on, you know, how they're done and everything. And then Marvin shares some additional tricks that uh, uh, he created. It's just great but my favorite part of that is the end he does a um, he does a talk on magic and a career in magic and talks about what's important and how you should approach it and originality and it's well worth listening to I um, I had first bought it on uh, VHS and I wore the tape out and uh, bought another copy on VHS and wore that tape out and then eventually got it on DVD it's great, and I encourage you to go out and find it because it's a wonderful um, thing. And you can tell how deeply Marvin loves magic by listening to him talk about that. It's great. And, of course, one other thing with Marvin, he uh, wrote his autobiography, Mr. Electric Unplugged, which was published by MC Magic Words, uh, Mike Cabney. And I understand the book is long out of print and sold out, but I've seen it come up a time and you know time and again on some of the um, 
Facebook uh, pages that sell, you know, magic books and stuff. So uh, if you're interested in it, it's a great book. Uh, honestly, is it? Uh, I, there were things in there I had no idea um, that they did in their careers and stuff. So wonderful. And uh, Marvin, rest in peace. So as you may know, some of the podcast episodes um, that I do actually began as blog articles on my blog, themagicdetective.com. Uh, and whenever I can, uh, I like to take an older blog article and move it to the podcast. And then it, when I do that, it gets a complete rewrite. Um, I add a bunch of material that I didn't know. One of my favorites, uh, frankly, I always <laughs> I love to bring this up, is the Daisy White um, article that I wrote on my blog because I had I had gotten a ton of information on Daisy White. I was so thrilled. I think I had uncovered more about Daisy White than just about anybody. And when I decided to turn it into a podcast, I was like, okay, well, here we go. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have to find some more information on Daisy. And I did. Uh, one of the most amazing things was finding pictures of Daisy White, uh, a young Daisy. In fact, I think uh, they the youngest one was like a five or six year old Daisy White and then Daisy in her teens. And then later, that was, I never expected to find that, but um, I did uncover quite a bit of information. So anyway, getting back to this. So today's episode began as a, uh, a piece on the magicdetective.com blog. And if you heard the bumper uh, that I mentioned, it was Keo, the great Russian illusionist. Well, that's a bit of a deception because Keo actually is a family of Russian illusionists. The name Keo uh, would become synonymous in Russia for nearly a century. So we'll start with the father, Emil Keo. His uh, full name was Emil Teodorovich Gershfeld Renard. He was born April 11, 1894 in Sayas, Latvia, which was then part of Russia. The family moved to Moscow in the years before the revolution. His parents uh, were from a large German-Jewish community. And there were two other sons in the family, but Emil was the eldest boy. Uh, now, this is usually about the time that I tell you how the, uh, the individual got into magic, except Emil, he had a kind of a roundabout way that he got there. He started simply enough by working at the Odeon, a theater across the street from where he lived. He became an actor. This was in 1916. Then in 1917, well, that's when the Russian Revolution began, and Emil was on tour when the revolution started, and it wasn't safe to return home. So the actor's touring company, and well, they eventually disbanded, leaving Emil in Poland. He then took up work with the Cineselli Traveling Circus, and he did every odd job available. This was much the custom in the circus. Everyone chipped in to the overall success of the show. Emil befriended a magician who was on the bill, and in fact, the man trained Emil to take over for, for him on occasion. And it seems his act was uh, a little light on magic, but enough that Emil could handle it. And over time, Emil decided to do more with the act, so he traveled to Berlin to see Conradi, the magic dealer, and purchased new equipment from him. Of the many new props he purchased, the standouts, I think, were uh, Emil's first box illusion, which is, of course, a common term used in illusion magic because so many of the early stage illusions consisted of boxes. 
Emil purchased a sword box from Conradi and developed a clever presentation for the effect. It was uh, termed a rejuvenation effect. An elderly lady in black clothing would enter the box at the start of the routine. The whole thing was closed up. Swords and such were placed through the box, penetrating her. And then at the conclusion, when they took all the swords out, the lady exited wearing white clothes, and clearly she was now a much younger version of her former self. Up until this time, he was really filling in or taking part the part of the existing performer. But now, with this act of his own, he needed a name to go with it. As is common with performers who change their name, there are several versions of where the name came from. But this one, I think, is the one that is most likely the truth. Emil claimed he saw a sign for a movie theater, and some of the lights were on and some were not. In Russian, a movie theater is called a kinotheater, or often kino for short. If the N is not illuminated, then you get kio. That is the official pronunciation, by the way, of the name. If you see it on posters, it reads capital K, then you see a backwards N, and then the letter O. This is from the Cyrillic alphabet, but it's pronounced Kio. In fact, there is at least one famous Kio poster that has both the Russian spelling of his name and the English spelling as well. From his autobiography, Conjuring and Conjurers, Emil mentions his early career uh, that he dressed in an, kind of an Oriental-inspired costuming. And I'd seen photos of Emile's costumes, and at first I thought his own description was inaccurate. However, having looked up the definition of the word, it's actually a word that means east, and originally applied to areas like Mesopotamia, Persia, and India. Later, those areas took on the term Middle East or Middle Orient, and the other countries further east uh, were, were eventually became known as the Far East, um, and then that term became Oriental. So his terminology actually was correct for the time. So you can understand his appearance. He wore a turban with a jewel in the center and long flowing robes and boots. It would certainly be an exotic or mystical appearance as opposed to the common person in Russia and in Europe. In the early part of his career, after he left the Cineselli Circus, he returned to Moscow in 1921. He began to tour in theaters throughout the country, and he continued to build his show bigger and bigger. Two key illusions besides the sword box that, he, that would become standards in the Keo show were the substitution trunk, made famous by Houdini, and the ethereal suspension, made famous by Robert Houdin. The former routine not only made famous by Houdini, but also presented by Houdini in Russia in 1903. Along with the new props and illusions, Keo added assistants and showgirls to his production. Over time, because of the political climate of Russia, now the Soviet Union, Keo had to alter his act. He soon became a circus attraction and would have to create effects that played in the round, meaning that they could be viewed from all sides. This is a fascinating period to read about because the state was taking over everything up to and including the circus. Part of Keo's job was not only to entertain but to deliver propaganda messages in favor of the Soviet system and in stark contrast to Western capitalism. Eventually, during World War II, the message became an anti-Nazi message. 
But keep in mind, as good as this sounds, delivering an anti-Nazi message, it was being delivered by communists. Now, this is the history of it. Right or wrong, it's not my place to judge. I find it fascinating. Whether I agree or disagree is irrelevant. It was not my time, and I wasn't even alive back then. One very interesting article I read mentioned that at some point, the Soviet circus had to take on the U.S. and capitalism as their subject, uh, what they referred to then as a culture of waste. But to do so meant a harsh examination of their own circus. Could they continue to adorn show people in fancy costumes when this was the very thing they were making light of in their political commentaries? Apparently, they dulled down the circus, they dulled down the costuming and their approach in order to really get the message across of anti-capitalism, at least until the 1950s when they decided instead of attacking another culture, why not share the positive things of their own culture? One of the first things was a change in costume for Keo. He now wore a tuxedo. His demeanor remained the same, fairly serious, not particularly flamboyant. His style of performing was very utilitarian. He was more of a grand conductor over the various things taking place. The other performers provided the comedy, the sensationalism, the excitement. Keo just kept everything moving. Keo continued to be a staple of the Soviet entertainment throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s. On December 19, 1965, while in Kiev, Ukraine, Keo passed away. He was in town performing at the State Circus Building. He was buried in the Novodichy Cemetery in Moscow, along with many famous Soviet persons of stature. His funeral was a grand affair, and his tombstone is one of the most amazing tombstones I have ever seen of any magician. It's quite remarkable. Responsibility for the circus and the magic show now fell to Keo's youngest son, Igor Keo. He was born in 1944. Whether it was known or not, I somewhat doubt it was publicized, but young Igor began to fill in for his father as early as the 1959 season. His father's health was the cause, and soon Igor would be filling in for his father on a fairly regular basis. By the time the father died in 1965, the transition was a simple one because Igor had already been filling in his father's shoes. In 1967, the Moscow Circus, with Igor Keo, began to tour the world and even came to America at Madison Square Garden. There's a write-up in the Magic Circular where he mentions the circus being covered favorably in a magazine called the MD Magazine, which I don't know what that was. Uh, but apparently the only thing the reporter didn't like in the Moscow Circus was Igor Keo, who the reporter felt was a second-rate magician at best. But this article, uh, written in the Magic Circular, Circular, was written by John Henry Grossman, and he took offense to the statement and says, in fact, that it would take an expert performer to be able to do these types of illusions in the round with the skill level that Keo had. So um, Grossman was very uh, impressed with Igor Keo. 
Now, John McGiven covers the review of the Moscow Circus and Keogh Jr. at Madison Square Garden for the new Topps magazine. He mentions uh, some of the spectacular illusions as well, as well as the unique methods that Keogh was using with his illusions. From the review by McGiven, it appears that young Igor Keogh's presentation has more speed, more pep than, than those of his father. The next quote comes from the pages of the December 1967 Mum magazine. His act concentrated on transpositions of humans, particularly attractive young ladies, with such illusions as the transposition of a spectator marked girl from one ceiling suspended cage to a remote suspended cage, the change of a girl into a lion, and the reappearance of a man and a lady in a horse-drawn buggy. He produced five large ducks from a tub filled with water and a few dozen doves from a small box previously showed empty, filling the ring which he worked with doves and ducks and so forth. He closed with his spectacular incineration effect in which a girl standing on a shallow platform was covered by a tubular curtain reaching to the ceiling. The curtain was set ablaze and apparently she vanished. A very interesting side note to the life of Igor Keogh was his love life. When he was a mere 18 years old, he met Galina Brezhneva, the daughter of Leonor Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union. She was 33, and she was married to a Russian circus acrobat. But why let that stand in the way of love, right? So she and Igor quickly fell in love and, well, they got married. That is, until Leonid found out about it and had the KGB step in. Their romantic marriage lasted uh, nine whole days. And by some accounts, uh, they were still linked together after the marriage breakup, but eventually Igor would marry another woman. In fact, like his father before him, Igor would end up getting married three different times. Igor Keogh would continue on with the circus and his shows into the 1980s. In the 1990s, he shifted things a bit and became somewhat of a TV celebrity by hosting different Russian TV shows. In truth, he seems better suited for that kind of job. I saw a video of Igor Keogh, um, and he seems very much like an MC or ringmaster of a show rather than being the hands-on type of illusionist that had become the staple by that time period. Uh, Mark Wilson in the 60s, Henning in the 70s, Copperfield in the, in the 90s and beyond. Illusionists now were very hands-on in their presentations. In fact, they became the central figures, often stepping inside the illusions. Very modern style as compared to what the Soviet illusionists, who remained very much the same for the bulk of the 20th century. Igor Kio died August 30th, 2006, he is buried near his father in Moscow. Next comes the older brother, Emil Keogh Jr. This kid was born July 12, 1938, and was part of his father's show in his youth, but he would eventually go away from show business and become an engineer. Now, in the last years of Emil Keogh Sr.'s life, the younger Jr. returned to the show to help uh, whenever the uh, whenever Keo was too ill. Now remember, I said just a few minutes ago that Igor was filling in 
Well, it apparently turns out that both brothers, Emil Jr. and Igor, were both filling in for their dad until he passed away. At this point, the state, the Soviet state, decided who would get the show, and it went to Igor, the youngest brother. But Emil Jr. was not left out in the cold. He was able to build a show out of his own and carry on using the name Keo. He carried on the tradition even after his brother Igor passed away, but time and age would eventually catch up to Emil Jr., and it appears he retired sometime around 2019, or, or it could be he came out of retirement around 2019 for a single appearance. At any rate, he was in his 80s when he gave his final appearance. With Emil Jr.'s retirement, that put an end to the Keo dynasty and the great run they had in, in Russia and in Europe. And if I might add, from a magic history perspective, the Keos have some wonderful posters and quite a few of them. I was fortunate enough to pick up two rather breathtaking posters about 15 years ago, and there are so many others. And the great thing is, is because there were three different Keos, there's quite a collection of posters that you can, uh, that you can pick up. The one issue that I have is the two posters I have are printed on like almost like a newsprint paper. So I don't even know what the lifespan of these things will be. They're very fragile. So that's something to be aware of. I don't know if all the posters were printed on that, but these two definitely were. Oh, and also a little knowledge of the Cyrillic alphabet is needed to understand what's written on the posters. Though the three individuals are distinctly different in appearance, so you can usually tell if their image appears on the poster, you know <laughs> you know who it belongs to, whether it's uh, Keo Sr. or Igor or Emil Jr. So, so there you go. Well, my friends, that is going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast number 53. I, I finally got it done July the 1st, 2020. I'm very glad about that. I will have another podcast coming out here soon. I'm, I'm digging deep. Trust me, digging deep before I, before I head back to Virginia. I'm going to try to get one more out here very soon. Until then, uh, if you like the podcast, please like the podcast. That means if there's a little heart button on your podcast uh, device, uh, hit that. Or if there's a thumbs up, hit that or whatever there is. If you happen to be listening on uh, Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving me a five-star review because that helps out uh, more people to see the, uh, uh, or be aware of the podcast, I should say. And uh, hey, you can even give it a review as well. You can click the five-star thing or you can give it a review or you can do both. That's crazy, but very cool and very appreciative. Um, let me see what else. Is there anything else? I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.